Balls. He's a libertarian in chief. This is the libertarian chief chat. Just a libertarian chit chat with the chief. Oh, hey, I'm Kevin. I'm here too. All right. Welcome to Cheap Chats with Kevin Hobby and Todd Hagopian. I'm Kevin Hobby. And I am Todd Hagopian. And we have one of my favorite people in the Libertarian Party with us today, Jake Porter, uh, who was the campaign manager for Jacob Hornberger this last time around. Jake, you want to introduce yourself briefly? Well, thanks so much for having me, first of all. Yep, I've been around in the Libertarian Party uh, since about 2004. Um, actually, I was, I remember, I think I came home from work or something. I was about 16 at the time uh, and um, maybe at school, who knows? And uh, I remember Fox News was on and uh, one of the candidates for our presidential nomination, Gary Nolan was um, on Fox News and he was talking, I said, I agree with a lot of what this guy's saying, you know, in the wars, uh, in the national debt, uh, personal freedoms. And I, I didn't think too much of it. And then uh, I remember I was getting up to, um, to go to work uh, one morning and uh, the announcement was on the radio at the six o'clock uh, uh, news in the morning that Michael Badnarik had won the Libertarian nomination over Memorial Day. And so I thought I need to, I need to look into that a little bit more. Those are the days of dial-up internet, but I get on the dial-up internet in rural Missouri and uh, rural Iowa in the area that I lived in. And uh, remember looking in that, and it was every day that I was looking to see what uh, what the campaign was doing. I was studying philosophy. Uh, some of the things didn't quite make sense to me yet. So I, I read uh, John Stossel, who I you know watched as a kid on ABC, and we had a few, few channels on TV, and then kind of really became a, uh, a, a libertarian and uh, joined the party and uh, have been here ever since. Wow, so that started really young. and. Uh... One of the reasons I should just kind of preface this, one of the reasons you're my favorite people in the party is, is there's very few people uh, who really pulled me along into the party. Uh, and I would say that you're one of them. Um, and I think I met you kind of after I had come to the party, but still couldn't quite find my way where I was going and what I was going to do. Um, but really, you took me under my wing and I really appreciated, you know, the insights that you've given me over time. And and you've had so many different experiences in the party, uh, which I think is interesting and we'll get to in a little bit. But talk a little bit more about that path. You, it sounds like you started younger than most. What, how did, what were you a year before you were a libertarian? And then how long did that process take to get you all the way there? You know, so it really goes back to where I was very young, maybe 10 years old. I remember around 1998, um, my grandmother had breast cancer, and I remember her talking about the doctor wanting to give her drugs. Uh, we're not even talking about medical marijuana or anything back then. We were talking about drugs from uh, chemo drugs, basically, from uh, Japan that hadn't went through the lengthy FDA approval process. And I remember thinking, um, even at that, uh, that age, how cruel of a government is it to tell a sick and dying person that they can't get the medicine that the doctor wants to give them? What business does the state have uh, dictating your medical decisions? They, they're not doctors, they don't know what you need. And this is something that really was between a patient and a doctor, but they couldn't get the medicine. I was wondering how many people die and how many people are suffering because of this. And I just kind of stuck in the back of my mind. I would say I was probably, um, more moderate, maybe a little bit more conservative. Um, and then I, um, 
you know, some of the issues that I first discovered kind of scared me a little bit, you know, legalizing hard drugs. I, you know, marijuana probably didn't bother me, uh, but uh, the harder drugs uh, probably did. And then it was saying that the war on drugs has failed. Um, every time we try to get government involved in stuff, it, uh, it does tend to tend to fail. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to get too sidetracked here because we haven't gotten into your story yet, but but the very first thing you mentioned was that FDA potentially killing people by uh, over-regulating. And I think, I think it's an important corollary to talk about today. You know, we've got some vaccines here coming out, whether or not you believe in the vaccines and you're going to take the vaccines or not, <clears throat> you've got vaccines coming out that are saying they're going to be 97% effective. <clears throat> the exact same vaccines, by the way, that were created in April and passed phase one and phase two in June. Um, and the, you know, phase one and phase two are where they test most of the safety. Phase three, they are also testing safety, but that's primarily an efficacy trial. Um, and so my, one of my strong opinions that has gotten a lot of hate online is that every person who has died since June is the federal government's over-regulation. Um, and it's due to their overregulation that basically 200,000 people have died in this country. Uh, because if you had wanted to take a vaccine, you should have been able to, uh, probably in April. But let's just say, even after they passed phase one and phase two in June, uh, most of the deaths have come since then. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, and I, I won't probably get into too much of the, the uh, technical details. I don't know. You know, obviously, uh, transporting some of these vaccines have been very difficult uh, to do. You have to keep them in such cold temperatures. So I don't know exactly when they would have got it out there, when the companies would have felt comfortable doing it. Uh, but I, the idea that the, the state should centrally plan a, uh, a, a pandemic response, and we see how disastrous it was, you know, in South Korea, where they have private companies actually doing the testing. They have private companies helping out. They're ready to go. The government wasn't holding people back. And it was because they'd been through it before. They've watched what happens when the government does hold people back, does hold uh, um, the citizens back from getting the treatment they need. And if we would see more of that here, I think in the United States, it'd be a lot better, not just with this, but everything else. The idea that the, the state itself is going to centrally plan and execute this. I'm sorry, I don't trust Donald Trump or Joe Biden to, uh, to uh, centrally plan our, our, our uh, medical care. That's not their job. That's not what the, the presidency was designed to do. Uh, and then the idea that the governors should have to fight with each other over who gets what supplies. You know, then I think the other thing, now we know the ventilators may have been inadvertently killing people, but the fact that we can spend trillions of dollars bombing other countries, we can't even have the basic medical supplies that we need. We don't even, we've not even prepared for that point. Shows you how messed up the government is when you put them in charge of stuff. This is something that we know that pandemic, we know that stuff like this happens every 50 or so years. You can see this happen. It happened this right. it happened again with the uh, the Hong Kong flu, and it happens again again today. We know that these these outbreaks are going to happen. We can see it with uh, the swine flu, with with SARS. They know that stuff's going to happen, but they don't properly prepare. But they can spend trillions of dollars uh, going all over the world to uh, uh, spread democracy. Right, in quotation marks, and and uh, for all of George Bush's faults, and several trillion of those were his fault. 
um, he was, I believe, the one uh, that really started pushing back um, and making the uh, national stockpile of all these materials um, what it was before Obama had depleted it and not re-put it in and then Trump had done nothing with it. Um, and so that we basically had nothing at that point to the point where um, I've shared that my company actually ordered masks before the government said that they were helpful because I was reading the news, I was reading the journals and I believed masks were helpful. So we ordered masks and the US government confiscated them at the border and took them from my company, <clears throat> didn't let us have them. Um, and then two weeks later, they came out with the recommendation that yes, people should be wearing masks. And two weeks later, there were no masks to be found. So we could no longer order them. Um, and so that's what the government did is they stole things from the people who were being proactive while they were lying about what works and what didn't. Um, and they were taking them to put in the, in the stockpile that they should have had stockpiled in the first place if they were going to centrally plan. You know what I mean? If they were, which they shouldn't have. So anyway. Right. So. Well, well, another anecdotal note about government overreach during this is so I'm a certified industrial hygienist which for people that don't know, I've, I, I, I have like 300 hours of studying the spread of viral diseases and, and the filtering of masks and, and how to properly filter air and things like that. I mainly specialize in oil and gas toxins and things like that because that's the industry that I'm in. But um, as early as January, the National Institute of Industrial Hygienists was coming out, was preparing to produce a paper that was going to discuss the effectiveness of N95 masks whenever it came to preventing viral diseases and the spread of that. And they were actually halted and threatened to stop their government grants for this study that was being conducted prior because at that point, the government was saying, no, you shouldn't wear masks. But these people that that's literally all we do is study masks and filtration and things like that. We're coming out with this paper that was going to basically go the opposite way and they stopped it. They threatened to stop funding. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, three weeks after that, it comes out, well, you know, now we want everybody to wear masks, but you don't have to wear N95s, yeah. which is really the only one that would prevent it. And, <laughs> So it kind of goes from there. And, and the only reason, by the way, that they said you don't have to wear N95s is because there weren't any available because the government confiscated them all. Yes, you know, 100%. If, if they were there, they would have said, because they knew, they would have said you had to wear them. Okay, sorry. That was our soapbox. Well, uh, yeah, you're, sorry. <laughs> sorry you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The government's they, all over the place. Is that you had a life-altering event with your grandma's chemo. And you came to that conclusion 24 years faster than me. That's the important part. So, <laughs> um, so after that, let's talk about what you've done inside the party because you've had some cool roles and some cool things that you've been a part of. So talk to us a little bit about all the stuff you've done since you've joined the party. So I actually, as a, as a teenager, I was 16, was uh, promoting Michael Badnarik anywhere I could. Uh, rural community, so not a lot of people to go and talk to. I don't think I actually met my first uh, libertarian until I moved to Des Moines and there was a candidate running for state house and that I actually went over and uh, and visited with. And uh, he was holding an, a 
uh, election event where people would get together and volunteer. And that's when I met some of the people that are still very good friends today, Ed Wright, Tim Hurd, uh, longtime libertarians as, as well. And I got to meet them. And that was, that was so exciting to meet libertarians for the first time. It was something I, I can remember, uh, I think it was Ed Wright, the former chair of the Libertarian Party of Iowa has a story that at one point he goes to the state capitol and he's just there looking around talking to his members of the legislature. And they say, somebody asked him, I said, who are you with? He said, well, I, I guess I'm with the libertarians. And they said, well, there's a whole bunch of you out here today. Really, who's who all's here? He said, I only know a few people in the park. Turned out there was a librarian convention that was happened to be taking place right there and they were touring the state capitol. Um, the people were very confused on what libertarians were that wasn't a household name. Uh, but I got involved uh, where I could in the state party, Libertarian Party of Iowa, 2006, um, and, and kept doing that and then got involved nationally. That was the uh, first presidential campaign I worked on, uh, uh, George Phillies' presidential campaign. I think we finished fifth or sixth out of like um, 13 candidates that ran that year. That was the one where we nominated uh, Bob Barr, Bob Barr and Mike Root. Um, yeah. it was, I was there for that. I, a, lot, a lot of interesting things. And there's a 20 year old uh, was, uh, chief of staff for, uh, for Phillies and basically co-managing it with uh, Captain, the late Captain uh, Charles Wilhoyt, who was a very interesting guy himself. He ran for governor of Tennessee at like the age of 80, I believe, and was on Facebook up until the point that he, he died in his 90s. Very cool. Well, that was your first campaign that you were a part of. And what year was that again? Is that 08? Well, yeah, so I had, I had helped uh, Brett Blanchfield in his campaign for state rep. Um, Kevin Litton, he ran for governor um, in 2006. George Phillies was in 2008. That was the first presidential campaign. Yeah. Okay. Uh, briefly helped Roger Gary in 2011 for his uh, presidential campaign when he was briefly uh, running for president. And that, that election turned out to be um, between Lee Wrights, uh, who was a good friend of mine, and uh, and uh, Gary Johnson. Yeah. So then, then I took a little bit of time off from all that and didn't return until uh, Jacob Hornberger ran for president. Because at the National Party, I've done stuff locally, uh, ran for office three times myself. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, because I'm always interested in people that have done all the different types of roles, like state executive, national, you know, candidate, campaign manager. So in 2010, I was looking at it and I thought, you know, I was looking at what offices, how can I help the libertarian movement? And I was so inspired hearing our candidate for governor, Eric Cooper, was talking about how we need to get these a certain percentage, you know, that way the Democrats and Republicans start to steal our ideas. I was so excited that I remember going home and I looked at it and I said, well, what can I run for? I wouldn't, um, didn't meet the residency requirements. I hadn't lived there long enough, I think, for state rep. And I was looking, I said, you know, Secretary of State, I actually, I could do it. I could do the job. And I was about 22 at the time, I think. That's about right. So I decided I was going to run for Iowa Secretary of State in 2010. Um, that was the craziest thing I think I've ever done. I was working full-time, was going to college full-time, and decided to run for Secretary of State. Um, but I did that. We ran radio ads, and I, at the time, had the, uh, I think it was the second highest vote total in the 45-year uh, history of the party, 40, 40-some-year history of the party, the state party. Uh, it was a lot of fun, um, but um, ran for that. Then in 2014, I decided I was going to run again. And this time I'd have a little bit more time. I could be a lot 
lot more serious about it. And I did. And we once again made the margin of difference. And it was in a four-way race and still got over 3%. And that was, I think, one of the highest in a, in a four-way race in the state that we'd ever had, maybe the highest at, at that point, up till that point. And then decided I would uh, run for governor and try to get some of our, our ideas implemented um, as part of policy. And that was very successful. I mean, you know, Iowa was one of only, I think at the time, three states that felons that had served their time, paid for their crimes, could not get their voting rights restored. They had to petition the governor. And there were 50 some thousand Iowans that had not had their voting rights restored. Wow. And that was something we campaigned on and the governor did sign the executive order this year um, after, after a lot of public pressure to, to uh, grant people the, uh, the rights back their voting rights back. So that was important. And actually a couple months ago, uh, Governor Reynolds did appoint me to the certificates of need board here in the, in the state. So wow. we, you know, we can't have, we can't have influence by, by doing this. And, you know, we got more media coverage that last time running for governor in 2018 than the entire party had got in, um, you know, 45 years uh, combined. And it was uh, what really sparked it was my friend uh, Marco Battaglia said, I want to run against you in a primary. And I said, well, let's 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 do this. And uh, we had a whole lot of fun <laughs> against each other in the primary. We got to be on public television to debate. The Des Moines Register had us uh, in there. They actually endorsed me in the uh, in the primary. So they were writing about us. We got to be in, invited to the uh, debates and forums with the Democrats that were running and some of the Republicans that were running. Uh, early on. So it was it was very, uh, very helpful, I think, to get these ideas out there and show that our ideas are pretty mainstream, really. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. So a <clears throat> couple of things there. So one, the thing you campaigned on the most ends up uh, getting acted on. That's pretty awesome. That's exactly what got you interested in the movement, you know, and getting involved in the first place. Two, you end up getting appointed to a commission you know, based on that work that you did. So, I mean, that's fantastic. Um, the interesting thing that you said right there at the end uh, that I want to touch on is just because we had another guest where we talked about electoral strategy um, and they were adamantly against primaries uh, due to the fact that it costs money, splits, uh, splits fundraising, you know what I mean? And it wasn't worth it where you should really get together, pick a candidate, and then get everybody behind them um, and drive forward. Can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of that primary um, and what that did for you, and good and bad? Yeah, um, I, I think the primaries can be very helpful, but I think you've got to have people that are really dedicated to the, to the movement, to the party, and aren't interested in tearing each other down. Um, because you do have times that you do get irritated with your opponents. I know I got irritated with Marco. I know he got irritated with me. Uh, and, and you do have some of that and you'll have some hurt feelings there. And so that's always something you gotta, you, you gotta recognize it's gonna happen. But at the end of the day, our goals were the same. And I was happy to support him if he won the nomination. Um, he was happy to support me when I did win the nomination. Um, and we actually had our, our primary night party together at the same location, and people couldn't believe that. I remember we went on uh, one of the largest news stations in, uh, in Iowa, um, in their Sunday morning program, and the guy, he asked me, he said, well, it'd be really cool if I could have both of you on at the same time. He said, I know that may not work. I said, well, absolutely. Let's, let's do it. 
And he said, you know, I never could get a Democrat and Republican to do this. He said, I couldn't even in a primary get to get people together to actually just have a, a friendly, uh, not even really a debate, just a conversation on TV. Right. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, we're out there, you know, spreading the libertarian message. I think people were really impressed. They were I remember at our editorial board meeting, the Des Moines Register interviewed both of us at the same time. And I remember there was a quote that one of them put on Twitter was like, these guys are actually getting along surprisingly well. For a... <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was something that we were out there spreading the message, uh, something that both of us were really committed to. And we reached, you know, tens of thousands of people that we otherwise wouldn't have reached. And, you know, as far as the cost of it, I can't speak to other races. I can't speak to other states. Um, you know, if we, if we were to do this at convention or something like that, because uh, now we, we lost access to the primary, so we don't have that ability anymore. I, I could understand that where you wouldn't want to do that necessarily. You could divide the party easily. Um, being contested, if it didn't draw you any media, if it didn't, if it didn't help you, that's probably not the best way to go. I think there's a way it can be done right, though. I think it's a way it can make you stronger. You're also testing your strategies out. You're testing your get out the vote effort because you've got to get out the vote uh, to win your primary. Yeah. And whoever does that best is, is going to probably be the best candidate that you can nominate because they're going to have to do that for the general election. And so often we just, we wait around till the last minute and then, oh, I'm going to run also. Well, heck, early voting, people have already started voting. By the time they decided to, decided to get into gear, it's not early in the cycle. It's so far late that everything's done. Yeah, no, I think um, I think that's interesting. So do you think that in the end, in your race, not, not talking about other people's races, but in your race, do you think that you had just as much money um, for the general that you would have if you had run unopposed? That I don't know, but I don't think it really matters. Because we were we were reaching people early on. We were we got people to register libertarian. I think we had a forty some percent uh, increase in registered libertarians that year. Wow. We were yeah we were getting people just to register, and so I don't think it matters that if we didn't have as much. By you know by the time you get close to the uh, to the general election, if you're in a competitive state like Iowa, if you're in a competitive race, and it was the closest race we had for governor in sixty some years. You, I could have spent an extra $100,000 that last week and it wouldn't have made a bit of difference. They were pumping in $19 million a piece in this race. Right, uh, right. I was getting, you know, I probably got over a million dollars in, in uh, you know, uh, free media coverage for us. Um, me and Marco did. I don't think it mattered. We were out there reaching people and that's the, that's the goal of this is to reach people. So I don't care if I reach people early on and get them to convert early, that's great. And even if they decide they're going to vote for one of the two major party candidates at the end, these people have still got that, they've now heard the libertarian message and they're gonna come around. They're gonna be there in the future. Even if they weren't this time, they've heard that message and you can't unhear it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think, um, I think that's an interesting, just counter argument to the other one that we heard. And, and even that guy said, um, and this was Rex Lawhorn uh, of Oklahoma who ran for governor, even he said there's a time and a place for a primary. You know, there are times when it's better um, and, and it means something. And then there's other times when you should have a targeted race. And his main point was that the state, um, the state party should have a solid strategy going into the election, whether that is 
targeted races or running primaries or, you know, whatever the strategy is that they should know what they're doing ahead of time and have everybody kind of lined up as this is what we're doing. So the fact that you went in with your, with your buddy and said, Hey, we're going to make this a competitive primary. We're going to spread Liberty. The goal is, you know, to get more people registered and, and have a stronger candidate pop out at the end. You know, that's different than maybe having three guys go at each other's throats, you know? Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, he called me up and said, Jake, I want to run for this. I know you're going to run. I want you to know that I'm going to run. There's nothing against you. I said, absolutely. I'm welcoming this. Um, I think this is great. You know, I don't, I don't want to win a Saddam Hussein primary. You know, I don't want to be the only candidate on the ballot, but I, I think there's a time. I, I also get, I, I get the, I get the counter argument. You, we don't want to put all of our resources in these top races. I get that. We don't want to neglect the city council races that we can't even throw nonpartisan that we can win the state legislative races that we, we can at, at times win. And we don't want to neglect anything like that. We don't want to neglect building our local infrastructure, our local organizations, or doing the things that, that we need to do uh, by focusing all of our resources in primaries. There's the other point that occasionally you have people that, um, how do I put this? We don't want to run as libertarians and we should primary them when they try to get on the ballot. And for that, I'm talking about white supremacists that have occasionally tried to run back years ago, decades ago in Missouri. Um, you have things like that that happen that you don't want, we don't want that to our brand. We don't want them, we don't want them to run with our party. Right, no, that makes sense. And then <clears throat> what about the thought, now you've run for three big races. Um, I ran for a statewide race. There's, there's plenty of people have come to me and asked me this question. I assume they've asked you, why aren't we, you and I, other folks in the movement um, that have successful backgrounds and, and decent reach. Why have you gone after the big races? What stops you from going after like a state rep race? Well, and, and that's an excellent question. So my strategy is a little bit different. Um, yeah, I could run for local office, try to win and, and try to get things implemented. But I wanted to focus on a few big issues. Um, and that's what I was able to do. Um, I could not reach that many people by running for city council. I could not reach that many people in a meaningful way and get them emotionally involved by running for state rep, by running for governor and talking about the things that the state did. The state had a guy, uh, the late Benton McKenzie here in Iowa, denied him his, his uh, medical marijuana and he ended up losing his life because of it. The state prosecuted that man. That is an emotional story that the people of Iowa need to hear. They need to see what the, what the state will do to enforce these draconian laws. And that's something that you can talk to a, a small group of people running for state rep at, or you can reach tens of thousands of people in the state and really convert people on these issues. And that's what I wanted to do. I think it's different for everyone. I know some people that have been elected to uh, uh, city council like Nick Nick Tabor who's been elected a couple couple terms over in uh, in Cedar Falls Iowa, um, you know that's that's where he wants to do and that's where he enacts public policy at. That's the kind of work that he wants to do and that's great. I don't think there's a one size fits all strategy. I think it's going to take all of us um, hitting this from multiple angles. And I, I respect the people that run and get elected to local office, um, but you know I also got appointed to a board that has has the power that people in the state 
state legislature may not have at yeah. times just one one vote there so just just things to keep in keep in mind that i don't think it's a one-size-fits-all strategy and you know we we often hear that this the oh you start the local and you work your way up i guess to be president uh, that's also pretty unlikely we need we need to really reach people and i i really don't want to wait 50 to 60 years to do it either right yeah, I think um, there's some really good points there. We in Oklahoma, we have five or six right now elected city council people, and they do some great things. They, um, you know, they fight against the mask mandates. They um, are working hard for property rights, and they they've had some good successes. But to your point, you know, getting one appointed official statewide is huge, um, and that probably doesn't happen if you win a city council race. You know what I mean? So I think you're right. There's everybody's going to have strengths. You know, my strength isn't knocking on doors, so I'm probably not going to win a race that you need three thousand votes for. You know, um, and and so somebody else's strength might be, you know, uh, debating on TV, and that's that's going to lend themselves more to a statewide race or or bigger. So I think you're right, and and you got to find your niche, and I think that you've obviously done well statewide. Uh, well enough to to influence policy and get appointed, so that's fantastic. Well, I think part of it too is that we we try to look at, and I don't know know why so much. You're a businessman, you you know, like in the same way I do. You look for people's strengths. Yep. You look to find out what their strengths are, and you you play to their strengths. And instead, if we have this bad, and, and I'm guilty of it too, but we have this bad idea that we treat all volunteers like they're the same. Right. You collect petition signatures, you do this, you do, and you can serve on a, on a state board. That may not be that person's strength. And trying to fit people where they, they don't fit at, um, doesn't it doesn't create a value for them, and they end up burning out and leaving after a couple of years. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's something we've got to be aware of. That's a great point. And I think the best, the best candidates are the ones that do exactly what you're talking about and they figure out where their volunteers fit best. I remember working on Chris Powell's city council campaign after he lost the gubernatorial race the same year you ran here in Oklahoma. He ran for city council the next year. Um, and he and I were talking and we were friends, but he lives you know, an hour, hour, two hours away. Um, and I was trying to figure out how I could help on his campaign. And it was like, well, we're knocking on doors on this day. We're doing sign holding on this day. And I'm like, man, I got four kids. You know, I can't come out on the weekend and just spend all day knocking on doors um, two hours away. You know, what do you have for me? And he goes, you want to make 200 phone calls? And I said, yes. <laughs> and so I get 200 numbers and I just make phone calls. You know what I mean? Um, and But that's the important part is, is figuring out what you're volunteers can do and can't do comfortably and, and making it easy because everybody that's working for you is doing it for free. Um, and they want to be, they want to be impactful, but they have to be able to make it work. Yeah. And there's, there's nothing better than doing something that you're meant for and that you're feel like you're supposed to be doing and you're passionate yep. about when you get people doing that, the, the results they have are just tremendous. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I think, um, one of the cooler aspects of your libertarian story is the 2020 race for the presidency. Um, so let's talk about Jacob Hornberger's race, how you met him, how you got involved, and ultimately how you uh, wound up becoming the campaign manager, if I have that title right. 
Yeah, no, that's that's correct. Um, so Jacob Horner, I've read his stuff, you know, uh, whenever I was first getting involved in the party, he's probably one of the reasons that uh, that I became uh, became a libertarian. I remember reading his stuff. So I, I remember him from then. The name's always been familiar. Um, and he showed up to speak at the 2019 Libertarian Party of Iowa convention. At that point, I was, I was done. I haven't had anything to do with the national party politics in years. Not went to a convention in you know, over a decade, haven't, haven't had much interest at all in what National Party does. Um, very, very a passing interest here and there, but never enough to get me in, involved. And I decided that was, I was done with that. But Jacob shows up and he gives such a speech that I watched all the people that were there, the 60 some people. And I'm like, he is inspiring them, he's inspiring me. I want to support this guy. And we, we talked, we had a, a nice conversation um, there and I, I gave him my contact information. I uh, didn't hear back from him. And, and finally I tried to get in contact with him and he'd announced his campaign because uh, he wasn't running yet. He, he was just kind of an exploratory campaign at that point. Yeah. Uh, and later on, I think it was in November or so he announces and he, I don't hear from him. And finally in December, I get a call from him and he's like, well, what? Said, he said, you've said you could help me with some stuff if I ever ran. And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, what can you do? I said, well, I can coordinate some volunteers. I can go over a delegate strategy. He said, oh, really? Well, I, let's let's get started. And so I, and the next thing you know, he asked, he's like, well, would you be my campaign manager? And I said, well, I tell you what, I'll be your campaign manager if you really want. You can't find anyone better. You can't find anyone else. I'll be your campaign manager until... Um, and if we win you the nomination, then you'll need to find somebody else for the general election. He said, no, no, I think you can do that too. So I don't know about that one, but uh, let's, let's get you the nomination first. And we looked at it and I thought there was about a 50-50 chance that we could win it. Uh, I, I was feeling pretty confident. And we tried a lot of, lot of fun strategies uh, with that, uh, that campaign. You know, uh, I think some people thought I was a little bit crazy. We, um, Early on, and, and Hornberger wasn't on the on the ballot there, but New Hampshire did like a, a caucus of some kind, and Vermont Supreme won, and they bragged about it, and they should have. They were doing. They actually had a very good, good, good campaign by doing that, because uh, it was something none of the other candidates were going to probably have the the resources or ability to to maneuver. Well, the, the next uh, uh, caucus was going to be Iowa, and I knew this, and we kept very secret about this, and. <laughs> I decided to launch basically a, a surprise to see if we could turn out votes based on the registered voter list and just doing some things, you know, text banking, um, phone banking, some other stuff uh, and targeted ads to libertarians. Just could we, and we didn't spend a whole lot of money on, on this, but I wanted to see, could we really increase the turnout? And if so, could we use these same tactics to increase the turnout in the general election, which is really what I was trying to figure out. Right. Um, so we did that and we won with like 47%. I think second place was 13% or something and the rest of them just kind of tied. And it caught everyone by surprise um, that, we had, uh, that we had done that. And then we pretty much followed that up in most other, other states where we could do that. Now I get these things are non-binding. They didn't have any delegates attached to them but that was something where we were figuring out what we could do. Uh, we targeted delegates, I think better than any other, other campaign could do. We had a great campaign campaign team and campaign staff. Yeah, no, I think uh, definitely winning Iowa 
and then starting to win the other states, not only primaries and caucuses, but also straw polls, um, which is an interesting aspect of the libertarian nomination, right? Uh, many of these states don't even have official caucuses or primaries. Oklahoma, for example, nobody registered in the primary because it cost $5,000 a candidate. Um, that was one of them we looked at and we wanted to, but it was, I, I did a cost benefit on every state and that yeah. was one of them that it just didn't, uh, didn't make sense to. And I, um, I supported that decision. I mean, it made it, you know, it makes sense to me that that $5,000 could be used better somewhere else, especially given that no one else was running. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was, it was difficult. We did put effort to get on in New York and in hindsight, yeah. I wish we wouldn't have done that. We got falsely <laughs> accused of yeah. trying to kick people off the ballot. Uh, that was not us at all. That was a bad actor from one of the other other candidates from everything I have heard. Uh, we didn't, and, and that did not have anything to do with any other candidates getting kicked off. So we won the, uh, we, we won it by being the only one that filed properly. But we had a lot of people spreading completely false rumors that uh, Jacob or I kicked people off the New York ballot. And that was so far from the truth. And you know, you, you, even though you can prove that you're innocent, that that's still out there, and it still it still stings. Yeah, um, and just to be clear, that that was actually um, negated. The person came out and admitted it afterwards. Um, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah. I, you know, what's funny is I didn't remember it up until you just brought it up, and the first thought that I had was, oh well, I remember they. Like what, if I remember correctly, it came out that the person that had claimed it had like falsified some documents or something. Yeah, and uh, I, yeah, I hate to even even mention that because there was, yeah, I, I guess somebody's name got falsely signed to it. Yeah, 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 yeah I remember that. Be... I had totally forgot about that until now. We don't, we don't need to name names, but the point here that I think is important is even the fact that it came out everybody heard the story everybody who cared to heard the story when it came out when the retraction came out as always happens 20 percent of the people heard the retraction you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well and there were people that were doing yeah. their so-called investigations that i found out what happened all i did was send an email to the new york board of elections i thought if you can't do basic research don't be don't be writing about it you know right yeah. Uh, so there was some of that, but and that this kind of stuff happens. I'm not uh, not worried yeah. about that. But when you when you by placing Jacob in the front runner um, status, I think that we we did. It also put a big target on his back, and there were there were things that people were going to use. There were enemies that he had in the party from you know 20, 20 some years ago that were that were out there, and we and we knew that. Um, you know, there were certainly things that I would have done differently if we could do it do it over again. But uh, it was it was interesting the way it, the way it all played out. Yeah, and and for I think most of the people know here that I helped on the campaign in a limited capacity, and um, and was a huge Hornberger supporter. And there were definitely you know interesting curves in the road. The first of which I thought that we talked to a previous guest about um, was when Kim Ruff, who was the um, supposed front runner at that moment, dropped out all of a sudden. Um, and that kind of helped thrust Jacob into the light. Um, and then later you had some very, very big names come into the race. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it was like? I mean, we, you and I knew that these folks may come in late, um, but as Lincoln Chafee dropped out, suddenly more moderate 
uh, libertarians came in. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like inside the campaign? Yeah, so Kim Ruff was the one that I was out of the current, the, the, well, at that point, the current field was the one that I was most had my eye on that would probably be very likely the competition uh, towards the top. There were a lot of candidates running, but I thought she could be towards the top. I still was figuring that somebody else might get in. Kofi caught me by surprise uh, to a degree. You know, you hear rumors that he's going to run and things like that. He jumps in, but I, I, I sometimes you wish that people would uh, consult candidates before they before they run and warn them about the way the Libertarian Party is going to be, the way our nomination is, because it's very different. And if you're not familiar with that, you're, you're going to realize that it's not. They're going to be friendly. right. And he's, he got booed in Iowa, and I felt horrible about that. There was somebody that actually booed him the way he answered a question. And um, I, he's, Lincoln Chaffee is a very, very nice guy. I, I really like him. But it was, it, it was in a position that I, I, I never thought that he was going to be. I, I was hoping that he would stay you know, strong enough that way he might be able to get, the, get some of the pragmatist support and then, then get second where we could beat him at convention. <laughs> But that uh, didn't happen. We, we did some polling uh, early on, which then I was uh, surprised that libertarians don't know what to, often don't know what to think about polling. And everyone just assumed it was Lincoln Chafee that was doing the polling and I didn't correct anyone. <laughs> that, that was really funny. <laughs> uh, we, we were doing that. I think some people figured it out. I, I, wouldn't, I would never confirm or deny at the time. We were, we were yeah, stuff, and it was mostly to test out our own our own tactics for the general. Right? I mean, it wasn't a push poll or anything. It was just an A B poll. It's just that folks assumed it was Chafee running it. <laughs> well, and well, the criticism we got was that it was a push poll. And I know it wasn't a push poll. I said you you, you pay by the question. Yeah. And I am not going to list twenty some candidates out there. Yeah, that's my point. It was a it was an A B poll. You could. You could, so you could say whoever you wanted. That doesn't make it a push pull. It's, it's, you know, you and, that, and that was together. That. Yeah, it was together information, but I, I more wanted, wanted to get libertarians interested in doing this. This is, I was thinking we're going to run this as you would a contested, you know, uh, state rep race. The things yeah. that you see locally, that's the kind of stuff that we're going to have to do to reach these delegates. Um, you know, uh, then, then Justin Amash uh, was flirting with running off and on. Um, uh, through through that whole thing, so that was always at the back of our mind, and he did jump in and then then got out. Um, I think that was probably what uh, what destroyed the or they destroyed the campaign. We we finished second, but that was probably what ended us right there. Yeah, uh, and I think we'd be happy to go into that too. But um, we we did very good winning these things. We got Jacob to as many states as possible before COVID hit, and then did as much uh, much online stuff as possible. And I think that was very successful as well. Uh, we scheduled them on every podcast we, we could. Um, we did his uh, weekly uh, Ask Me Anythings. He was, he was certainly active. Yeah. Talk, uh, talk about your delegate strategy because I thought that was pretty awesome. Well, that one there was, you know, we, we tracked delegates. Um, we, I, we, we tried to use a um, lot of work with, uh, without getting too much into that. Maybe, maybe I, maybe I want to manage another campaign in the future or <laughs> myself or something. I don't know, but uh, without getting too much into that, we actually tracked the, the delegates where we thought they were, um, where, where we thought people were going 
and tried to have a pretty good indication of how people would uh, would vote on those second and third ballots because we knew it probably wouldn't really be one on the first ballot. So that was that all went into our strategy. Um, you know, I, it was it's very complex when you got that many candidates running. You had Jim Gray jump in for a while, yeah. and I thought that he he had the potential to uh, to take off him and him and Larry Sharp, and, and that never really happened either uh, so many factors in there with COVID he got in late um, you know there's we had the whole thing I, I almost forgot about uh, Mark Whitney uh, who can forget that <laughs> oh my goodness I forgot about Whitney too I can't, can't forget about Mark Whitney um, a whole episode on Whitney versus Hornberger <laughs> <laughs> well that was that was entertaining because I remember I we didn't really know anything like this was going on and then I happened to get this thing and I remember I'm talking to Jacob and I'm getting this alert on my phone and I mentioned it to him and he just busts out laughing when he called him a uh, little well, name I'm not going to repeat on here. <laughs> it started with the mother and it wasn't Jacob or at the yeah. end but uh, <laughs> um, he did that and you know then there was a whole thing in Florida and I didn't know what was going on and I had people asking me well uh, I think my favorite question was uh, well what is Hornberger's statement on Florida? Thinking, well, Jacob's not going to use the, the worst word he might use is jolly well. And uh, so he's not going to curse. So I don't know what, I don't, not, doesn't impact us, whatever rules they have. But uh, we just kind of stayed out of that and, and ignored it and gave it the respect it deserved. But uh, yeah. <laughs> it was certainly entertaining for, a, I guess, a couple of weeks. It was. Yeah. And I think um, kind of to, to wrap the 2020 election in a bow, I think at the end of the day, going into election day, um, we knew that we probably didn't have enough second place votes um, to win. So we were going to have to dominate the first place votes, right? That was basically where we were coming into election day. It was, and there were so many different uh, different elements to that. Um, and it got downright nasty too of the uh, in-person versus online convention. Yeah. And and various conspiracies that were that were put out there that were, were just not true, um, not against us, but against Amash and uh, yeah. j just absolutely false. Um, uh, no, no complaints whatsoever against Justin Amash. Um, I have absolutely none. Uh, he, ju he jumped in the race. Um, I think he, that's, that's once again. I, I think that he had some serious missteps. Uh, things that. We look at you know being in the party for so many years. We know that you put um, you put the libertarian logo on there somewhere. You don't do that, and it, it just doesn't sit well with people. There was a few things like that that you don't do, and people notice it. Yeah, and they were there were missteps that he had just because I don't I don't think they were quite uh, prepared for the difference of campaigning for our nomination. Right. Um, you know, had he had he stayed in, would he have won? Um, I, I don't know. I think it would have been really close. I think it was potentially could have went three ways. Um, I you know, did see Joe Jorgensen surging here at the end. Um, you know, my my advice, and I think it turned out to be correct, was to ignore Amash and just uh, just see what happens and see if by chance he doesn't run. Right. Um, I think that probably would have would have been best. But uh, you know, ultimately, candidates candidates make their own decisions on that. I, I certainly can understand and respect that. Yeah. Yep. No. And, it, and in the end, we had a great, 
we had a great candidate. You know, you and I both liked Jorgensen, respected Jorgensen, uh, and our guy lost, and that is what it is. Uh, well, and I actually helped help the Jorgensen campaign. Was happy to do that. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I, I liked Joe Jorgensen. I actually uh, picked her up from the airport whenever she came to Council Bluffs uh, end of October. I had a nice conversation with her. I really like the camp the campaign team, and I'm happy we uh, we were able to reach quite a few people through their bus tours or their texting campaigns. So I was I was happy about that. Cool, cool. Well, well, in the in the last five minutes here, Jake, what's next on your plate? Uh, what do you got going? Well, all all kinds of stuff going on right now. Um, I'm doing some work for a, a group that's it's going to be called it's, it's actually called Phoenix Congress. Uh, it's going to be um, have another website coming up soon. It'll be an American majority, and they have a lot of libertarian-leaning issues. You know, uh, uh, ending uh, mass incarceration, um, you know, ending the endless wars, and it's it's kind of a, an idea to bring people together, a block of voters. Now, it's not it's not libertarian per se, and it's it's not affiliated with the Libertarian Party at all. But it's something that I, I think we should work with with our allies as much as possible to, on, on the areas we agree. They also support a UBI. So many of us are not uh, not not as uh, excited about excited about their economic plans on, on some of that. But uh, that's okay. Uh, we don't have to agree with people 100% of the time. Uh, it doesn't reflect on how we as libertarians need to uh, run our own campaigns uh, to work with organizations that agree with us most of the time. So that's one of the things that I've been doing. Uh, been doing now. Um, I don't know about the future. Um, you know, I, I would like to talk a little bit about how we nominate our candidates so that way they are better prepared um, uh, for whenever they do get the nomination. I think it's something that, that's been a problem for years and years and years yeah. that we never have to set up the infrastructure until after we get the nomination and then we're all running around. So I'll probably be doing some commentary on that as well. Uh, and potentially, yeah, I don't know. Not, not, not really for sure yet. Well, I think we'd love to have you back on uh, as the campaign gets gets started, because I think um, both you and I probably are going to be looking for teams to be on, whether we're together again or not. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to, to get your perspective. My feeling is, is we're going to have a really good 2024 group of candidates um, and it's going to be a lot different than 2020. So we'll see how that works out. But let's. Um, yeah, I think so. And it, it takes so much to run for president. And I greatly appreciate the, the people that do and the people that join these campaigns. You know, I, I, I hear a lot that we shouldn't focus so much on it. That drives up attendance to our conventions, though. It gets people involved for the first time. Like I say, I, I became involved because of our nomination, a candidate that wasn't even successfully lost to Michael Badnarik. Yeah. Uh, Gary yeah. Nolan seeing him on, on Fox News. So we do reach people in these nomination processes and we do get people excited and we, we do get people that, that actually take action and stay here for years and decades. I agree. Well, Jake, tell everybody where they can find you and we're definitely gonna have you back on maybe to talk about Phoenix Congress, but definitely to talk about the nomination, but tell people where they can find you. Well, they can find me, uh, jakeporter.org is, is under construction, maybe for a while. You can also find me at my business at jakeporterconsulting.com, jakeporterconsulting.com. Uh, people can find me on there. I am on Twitter. Don't do much on Facebook or anything else now, nowadays. I've given that up, but, uh, but, but I am on Twitter. Yeah, smart, smarter than me. All right. Well, Kevin, you got anything? 
nothing for me. I really appreciate you coming on. I think this is a great episode and um, can't wait to get it out. Yeah, we love Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we love these inside looks, Jake. And it's been a pleasure working with you. Pleasure being with you in this movement. And we'll have you back for sure. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you.